Good morning, Mission Church. Wow, it is so good to see all of you here. Uh, thank you uh, for joining us this morning. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, for those of you who are new to church, maybe new to uh, your Bible, uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first book in the, what we call the New Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, and then the next page, you should see the book of Matthew. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 this morning. For those of you who are online, thank you so much for joining us this morning. For those of you who are in Myerstown regathering today, it is so good to know that you guys are together this morning and that we're together with you. And for those of you who are here in this room this morning, man, it is wonderful to see uh, faces in, in this place and to uh, be able to worship together and to hear your singing. And I, I got to just say that I am excited to share God's word with you today. Um, that's what I have written in my notes. Uh, but, you know, honestly, after singing those songs and going through the preparation and looking at this passage this morning, uh, it's a bit intimidating. It is a bit intimidating. And so if, if I could, can I just, can I just pray? Uh, this morning one more time. God, we just come to you today and we are humbled to be able to do so. And we are so grateful, God, uh, that we can come and worship in this place wherever we may be and sing words, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And if... Uh, if we can come to the end of this day and be repeating that phrase throughout our day, throughout our week, throughout the rest of our lives, then we will know that your spirit has accomplished good work. So we pray that you would use your word today to do just that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I am excited to uh, proclaim God's word with you this morning because I'm expecting him to do a work in people's lives today because I know that as I have looked at God's word this week, he has been really working on a lot of things in my own life as I've, as I've studied God's word. Uh, you know, digging into God's word is such an awesome thing, and I'm humbled that I get to share uh, with what I've been feasting on this week. So, Pastor Jerry, thank you for the opportunity to do that today. And um, so, as you know, last week we started a new sermon series called Blessed, a study in the Beatitudes. Uh, they're called Beatitudes, these first eight sayings uh, in, the, in Matthew chapter 5, because the Latin word beatus means blessed, okay? And each one of these statements begins with the word blessed, um, and speaking of that word blessed, have any of you ever prayed for someone to be blessed? I have. I do it all the time. And when I do that, what I'm praying for God to do in blessing a person is that I want Him to help them. I want Him to protect them. I want Him to provide for them and encourage them. And essentially, what I'm praying for is that He would make them happy, healthy, and safe. Happy, healthy, and safe. And that is a great way to pray. It's a great way to pray. 
Because one of the definitions of blessed is divine favor. God does give us favor. That's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor that God gives to us. But I trust that as we go through this series, as we look at the Beatitudes together, our perspective on blessing is going to change. It's going to radically change. It's going to radically change the way we think about those who reside in God's favor. And this is a good thing. You see, the Beatitudes are a group of eight sayings that Jesus preached as the introduction to what many call the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And let me tell you, if the Beatitudes are just the introduction, we are in for quite the treat when we read the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's going to be a barn burner. Have, have, you ever heard, have you ever heard the phrase, that'll preach? You know, when you, when you hear something that's particularly convicting or, or particularly incredible, you, I, I've heard other pastors say, that'll preach. That, that'll get you going, right? Listen, every sentence in the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, is a that'll preach sentence. Be why? Why is this the case? Because Jesus was saying things that went against the grain. He was saying things that were completely countercultural, completely other than the way that people that day thought about God and how to relate to Him and others. So as we look at, this, the, at, these, at these sayings that Jesus preaches, uh, we need to remember a couple of things. Number one, he is speaking primarily to an audience of his disciples. He's speaking primarily to his disciples, those who were truly committed and those who truly wanted to go deeper in their relationship with the Lord. So this teaching is meant for those who are already following after Jesus, it's not meant to explain how a person gets saved, but it's meant for the maturing of those who already are saved. I'll say that again. It's not meant to explain how a person gets saved, but for the maturing of the person who already is saved. But note this, the crowd that Jesus separated from is still in earshot of what he is saying. So there is a secondary purpose of evangelism, but that's because the crowd is going to overhear what he says, and they're going to be challenged. They're going to be confronted with the way they think about blessing. So let's jump into Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Uh, Jesus says, seeing, or, or, or Matthew says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And last week, Pastor Jerry set the stage for us by looking at these first two, two verses where Jesus went up on the mountain and separated from the crowd. And then his disciples followed after him to seek him and to sit at his feet. He separated from the crowd, and they sought the Lord and sat at his feet. And that little, uh, that little outline is the same outline that we're going to use to unpack each beatitude uh, each week of this series. And the first beatitude that we're going to look at is in verse 3, and it says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in this beatitude, we see three keys to living 
poor in spirit. And key number one to living poor in spirit is separate from the haughtiness of the crowd. Separate from the haughtiness of the crowd. So not only did Jesus and his disciples physically separate, they went up on the mountain to to separate themselves from the crowd. But the teaching that he was giving was actually separating his disciples from the mindset or the philosophy of the crowd, or you could even say the philosophy of the culture of that day. So what we want to do first is we want to look at some of those philosophies that, are, that, that we could deem haughty in spirit philosophies. And the first one that we're going to look at is, is uh, the, the philosophy of the Jews. The philosophy of the Jews. The Jews were haughty in spirit because they trusted in their pious pride. They trusted in their pious pride. And that is best illustrated uh, if we look at Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells this parable. He says, he, uh, again, Luke says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see who he's speaking to, those who trusted in themselves. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And Jesus pronounces... Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. You see, this Pharisee and many Pharisees since then have found their blessing in their righteousness, in their own righteousness, in their own religious acts. And you know what? I've found myself in the same position a lot of times. I can think pretty highly of myself. Uh, I can think of myself as a pretty blessed person. Why? Sometimes I'll say to myself, did you see, like, wow, I was, I really helped that person. I that was a really good work, Brett. Good job. Or, or maybe I'll, or maybe I'll say something like, man, I, I don't remember the last time I missed church. Way to go, man. You're blessed. Or wow, wow, like scripture, man, I, I just I just feel like I know it really well, you know? Ah, God is I, I'm so blessed, right? But friends, these are not the reasons that Jesus tells us why we're blessed. And sometimes, friends, even like the Jews, we, we, we might even, I find myself even twisting the Scriptures to make them sound the way that I want to so that I can feel the blessing that I want to. Here's one, here's one that I hear all the time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
I, I see that on social media all the time. I can do all things. But you know what seems to be emphasized is the I and the me. And we kind of, we kind of cut out the Christ who strengthens part. Friends, it's astoundingly easy for us to take the truth about ourselves in Christ and make it about how great we are. And what we do at that point is we become spiritual photo editors. And, and, and we take the photo of Jesus, who's really actually carrying us, and, and we just kind of crop it in, right, so that we can see the big smile on our, on our face and everything else is cut out of the picture, including Jesus, the one who's doing all the, all the work. Another, another philosophy of the day was the Romans. The Romans, there would have been Romans in the crowd who were listening to Jesus, and, and they were haughty in spirit too. The way that they thought was that, that, that blessing is found in political power or political prowess. And a really interesting illustration of this is found in Acts chapter 12. Uh, this passage speaks about a political conflict that Herod, the same Herod who was involved in the crucifixion of Jesus, Herod has this conflict with some, some of the people that he ruled in Tyre and Sidon. And, and in verse 21 of Acts 12, he, it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them the people that he was, that he was in conflict with. And, and, and this oration was so good that the people began shouting, the voice of a, of a God and not of a man. And, and what do you think Herod did at that moment? Wow, I, I'm a pretty blessed man. I got what it takes. I'm the bee's knees. I am all that. And look what happens. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Why didn't he give God the glory? Because he was haughty in spirit. Because he, he trusted in political prowess for his blessing. And yowza, what happens? He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Yikes! Do you think that any of our political leaders today could learn something from this story? Amen. Do you think any of our political leaders kind of think, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal? Or maybe they even say it publicly. But here's a question for us. Do we ever align ourselves with them to gain their blessing? Or, or do we put our hopes in them and their, and their policies uh, for a more blessed life? Um, I remember reading uh, a long time ago about Chuck Colson. Actually, I was reading something that he wrote. And he told a story. Uh, Chuck Colson, if, if you don't know who he is, many of you probably do, but Chuck Colson was a well-known politician back in the 70s under the Nixon administration, and he was very involved in the Watergate scandal, and he went to prison because of his involvement in the Watergate scandal. But while he was in prison, he got saved. 
and he began, and after he got out of prison, he began a, a ministry that still is having impact in people's lives today. Um, but he, he talked about a time after, uh, after he got out of prison and he was going to give some sort of presentation somewhere and, 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 they, and they brought a limo for him to pick him up and take him where he was going and, and, and in the limo there was like a, a newspaper and a, and a hot cup of coffee and, hi, and his mind raced back to when he was a, a powerful politician in Washington and he said, he said, it was scary to me to remember the power that I felt in those days because of my position, because of the politics that I was involved in. Because people did these kinds of things for me every day when I went to work and they served me. And, and, and he felt this sense of power and haughtiness of spirit and he, and he talked about how dangerous that was now that he was a believer. And friends, that political power was something that swelled Mr. Colson's head and shrank his heart. Now, not many of us actually have that same uh, identical experience as Chuck Colson with that kind of power, but let me tell you, there are things in our lives that produce the same shrinking heart and swelling he head, aren't there? How about, how about our position on the corporate ladder? Like uh, maybe as, as some of us climb, does it cause us to think more highly of ourselves than, than maybe we ought? Or maybe too lowly of, of other people? What about our physical strength? Sometimes that, that, can, that can puff us up, right? To, think, to make us think more highly of ourselves than others. What about, what about the material prosperity that we get to experience? For those of us who have means... Has that ever caused us to look down on someone who didn't? These are all things that can cause us to think too highly of ourselves and too lowly of others. But what does Jesus say? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's talk about one other group that would have been in the crowd that day. It's the Greeks. The Greeks were haughty in spirit because they, they, they sought blessing in, in secular wisdom. We see this in Acts 17 where Paul goes to Athens and, he, and, and it actually says in verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They just wanted to gain new knowledge day in and day out and, and puff their minds up with knowledge. He also talks about the Greek seeking wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1 and that that's where people were putting their hope and their trust. And, and it reminds me of the question, did have you ever heard a really smart person scoff at God? I remember one of the first times I had that experience. I, before I went to Lancaster Bible College, I went to a secular university, and I had a geology class. And in the, in the class, the professor was speaking about the final exam. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And uh, he, was, he was telling us about he, uh, a question about the age of the earth. He said, I'm going to ask you how old the earth is. And he, and he then specifically went right after Christians. And he said, if you believe that the earth is young, maybe 20 or 30,000 years old, and you put that answer down on the test and you try to justify yourself by saying that you think because of what you read in the Bible that the earth is young and not bi- millions or billions of years old, you are a fool. You're going to get the question wrong on the test. And I remember sitting there going, what just happened? Like, I've, I felt belittled. I felt shocked because of what this man was saying. And he was so confident in saying this from his perspective of wisdom. Friends, the secular wisdom of our day does anything but take us to a place of poor in spirit. You're not going to find any books on the self-help section that say five ways to humble yourself or seven tips for being poor in spirit. You're just not going to find that book. And, And friends, let me just... Sometimes this philosophy, this secular wisdom makes its way into the church. You know, our culture wants us to encourage people, but they, but, and that, that's, that can be a good thing, but they tell us to encourage the strength that people have inside of themselves. Find it within yourself to overcome that thing. Where, what, what does Jesus say? Jesus says it's better to push people to the strength of Jesus, to the strength of God, and say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because why? Because that's who the kingdom belongs to. Friends, in all of these philosophies, the pious pride of the Jew, the, the, the political strength of the, of the Roman or the secular wisdom of the Greek, the haughty in spirit basically come to the Lord and they say, look what I can do, God. Look who I am, Lord. Look, look what I have. Don't you think you could use that in your kingdom, God? but what does God say what do you have that you did not receive if then you received it why do you boast as if you didn't so what are we to do well Jeremiah 9 tells us exactly what to do thus says the Lord let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. He tells us to separate from the haughtiness of the crowds, of the culture. And point number two, he tells us to seek the humility of the Lord. Seek the humility of the Lord. 
He tells us to be poor in spirit. He talks to us about spiritual poverty. And, and we have to ask ourselves the question, well, how does spiritual poverty uh, uh, equate with humility, as we've stated in point number two? When, when we define humility, uh, one definition could be a modest or low view of one's importance. And so how do we get that from poor in spirit? Well, it's in the Greek. It's in the Greek words that are used. There are two words that the New Testament uses for poor. And the first word is um, penes. The first word is penes. And, and it stands for one who is so poor, he earns his bread by daily labor. labor. Uh, this is the person who lives paycheck to paycheck. They're, they're just, they're, they have the ability to work, but man, it is a meager income and, and they've got to work hard. But the second word that the Bible uses that is translated into English as poor is the word patokos. And this is one who only obtains his living by begging. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the beggars. He says, blessed are the beggars. The beggar is one who has no resources of his own. He has no chance of survival apart from the kindness of another. He doesn't even have the ability to work for himself. And, and when someone does bless him with something, he has no ability to repay. And this is who Jesus tells us we are. We are. He says, blessed are the spiritual beggars, the poor in spirit. Friends, we bring nothing spiritually to our salvation. We are utterly helpless and destitute. We are spiritually bankrupt. When you see a beggar at an intersection, how does that make you feel? What are the thoughts that come into your mind? I know what happens in my heart and my mind when I see someone begging. And I gotta tell you, it's not, the, it's not my definition of blessed. But what is Jesus doing here? He's revealing how upside down his kingdom is, how totally unique his way of living and thinking is. And he's also revealing how utterly desperate we are. We are in a desperate situation, spiritually speaking. Friends, this idea of being poor in spirit is, is foundational to the rest of the Beatitudes. This is where Jesus sets the anchor, and it's the first time we read through the, when we read through the Gospels where Jesus asserts what he also asserts in uh, John chapter 15, where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, the, the most appropriate posture is for us to fall down on our knees and beg of the Lord for blessing because we can't 
merit it in and of ourselves. The theological idea that is, that is being put forth here is called total depravity. Total depravity means this. It's every part of our being being corrupted by sin. Our human will is bent in on itself so that we will not seek God and we will not choose God in and of ourselves. Friends, what it's saying, what total depravity, the, the doctrine of total depravity tells us is that no matter who we are, we are capable of anything. Any and every sin is within our grasp to commit. At our core, in every aspect of our humanity, we are corrupt. This is what Jesus is teaching, and it's also what Paul wrote in Romans 3. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. He's quoting the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Augustus Toplady, the writer of Rock of Ages, the, the, the wonderful hymn of our faith, he understood this well when he wrote this. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The person who's poor in spirit grasps this, they embrace this, they even rejoice in this, in this idea of total depravity because they understand most fully the absolute miracle that God's grace is. That God would look on us in our spiritual poverty is the most unbelievable miracle in all of the universe. And these people are unlike the haughty in spirit who say, how about my strength, God? While the poor in spirit say, your power, Lord, is perfected in my weakness. They say, how about my wisdom, God? While the poor in spirit say, your foolishness, Lord, is wiser than man's wisdom. They say, how about my beauty, God? While the poor in spirit say, Lord, you make beauty from ashes. The haughty in spirit say, how about my good works, God? While the poor in spirit say, cleanse my filthy rags, Lord. The haughty in spirit say, how about my righteousness, God? While the poor in spirit say, thank you for your righteousness, Jesus, that you have given to me. And, and the, the haughty in spirit say, how about my love for others, God? While the poor in spirit come and say, God, we love because you first loved us. I was reminded in my study this week that the poor in spirit join with Moses and say, I'm slow of speech. I can't do it. They join with Gideon and say, my family is the least and I'm the least in my family. They join with David and they say, who am I that you would be mindful of me? They join with Isaiah and they say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. They join with Mary and they say, you have looked on the humble estate of your servant, Lord. They join with John 
John the Baptist and they say, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He must increase, I must decrease. And they join with Paul in saying, I'm the chief of sinners, wretched man that I am. And God's grace is sufficient for me. And they join with that tax collector in Luke 18 who went to the same temple as the Pharisee and he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what did Jesus say? He said, that man, these people are the ones who go to their homes justified. These are the ones who leave their pride behind. And these are the ones to whom belong the kingdom of heaven. Why? because they've separated themselves from the haughtiness of the crowd. They have sought the humility of the Lord, and the the result is that they sit in the promise of heaven, point number three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, this is talking about the gift of future eternal life in heaven. The crowds within earshot would have heard this and laid down their pride and received the kingdom. But notice the language that Jesus uses. The language that he uses here is present tense. He is talking about right now. The kingdom of God is a present reality for the poor in spirit right now. Remember, his his main audience is his disciples. The disciple who embraces their poverty of spirit, even after they've been saved, they're the ones who get all the blessings and the benefits of God's kingdom. What are those benefits? Pastor John MacArthur writes this. We have kingdom grace. We have kingdom mercy. We have kingdom peace. We have kingdom joy. We have kingdom sovereignty. That is, that the sovereign king takes care of his subjects. We have kingdom comfort for the times of sorrow. We have kingdom wisdom dispensed to us through the manual of the kingdom, which is the word of the living God. All spiritual blessings are ours. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. We have the promise of glorification, the promise of sanctification until we reach that glorification, the promise that everything is going to work together for good for those who love God because we're subjects of the king. The kingdom belongs to the spiritual beggars who embrace the fact that they have nothing to offer, but they lean solely on God's grace to give them all that they need. Friends, when we admit that we have nothing, we gain everything. But this is not easy. It's not. R.C. Sproul said this, perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for our salvation. It is difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. 
We want to earn our way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. But what does Jesus say? Blessed are the beggars in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. You know, if God came and asked you the question at the end of your life, why should I let you into heaven? And your answer was, God, I, I, I gave to the poor. I went to church. I came from a great family. I had faith. I got saved. Or any other answer that begins with the word I or me or focuses in on that aspect of it. Friends, today we have the opportunity to repent of that thinking and to come to God and to bow as spiritual beggars at his feet and to say, God, I'm not worthy. You gave your life for this one who is poor. God, I'm not worthy. You adopted me into your family. God, I'm not worthy. You are the one who gave me the faith to believe in the first place. God, I'm not worthy. You saved me. You reached down to save me when I wouldn't even put my hand up to reach for it. And when we come to that place, when we come to that place of, of realizing that we are spiritually poor, that we are beggars, what does Jesus do? What does he say? The kingdom of heaven is yours. This is where life in the kingdom begins, friends. God, we just come to you and we bow our knees before you because we have nothing spiritually to offer to you. Remind us of this today, Lord. Root out the pride that is so insidious in our hearts. And let us come to you with empty hands today and say, I have no hope in and of myself, yet I have all the hope I need in you. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that you give to us. We bow at your feet, Lord. 
We ask for your help in this because we can't conjure up humility of spirit. We cannot be humble or poor in spirit in and of ourselves. We need you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.